0: This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Mystery and Suspense author Robert B. Parker Died at the age of 77 on June 18, 2010. His career encompassed 38 novels in his popular Spencer detective series during his life, with another three published posthumously, plus nine novels in the Jesse Stone series, four in the Colin Hitch series, six in the Sonny Randall series, nine other novels, and four books of nonfiction. I interviewed Robert B. Parker twice. The first time, co-hosted with Lawrence Davidson, was recorded in Parker's hotel room in the spring of 1981, at the time he'd just switched publishers, and with Looking for Rachel Wallace and then Early Autumn, he was finally having success as an author. That success would explode exponentially over the next 11 years. And by the time of this interview, recorded in the KPFA studios on June 13, 1992, with my co-host Richard A. Lupoff, Robert B. Parker had written an additional 10 Spencer novels. The TV series Spencer for Hire, starring Robert Urich, had run for three seasons, and a spin-off, A Man Called Hawk, had had a 13-season run as well. In addition, He'd completed an unfinished Philip Marlowe novel by Raymond Chandler and followed that up with a sequel. That day in 1992, he was on tour for the Spencer novel Double Deuce.
1: The most recent book, Double Deuce, puts Hawk and Spencer in a ghetto. And this book came out, oddly enough, around the same time as the L.A. riots. Mm -hmm. What brought you to the subject of dealing with drug running
2: in a ghetto? There's several answers to that. One is it was time to do another book and I had to write about something. Uh, And uh, sometimes authors tend to slight the sort of professional business-like aspect of their work, but it's why most writers write. Having decided that I would write something and trying to figure out what I would write about, I thought it might be time for Hawk to be a more central figure placed in a context where he was not the outsider and where Spencer would be, and uh, this was how I sort of developed the whole thing. Plus, I wanted to have something to say about what Gunnar Meyer called 40 years ago the American dilemma, and it still is, and it's not getting better.
1: How did you feel about after the L.A. riots?
2: Just about the way I felt before the L.A. riots, which is, uh, you know, it gave an opportunity for our elected officials to be buffoons in public for a little while, and there'll be a lot of talk and nothing will happen. And in a while, we'll have another riot.
1: Do you think books like Double Deuce can help her or not? Or, do you, or is it just a story for you? I don't
2: think they'll do any harm, but I doubt very much that it will uh, sway the hearts and minds of the American public sufficiently to make a real meaningful difference. I think the only thing you can do is try to find someone who's got an idea on how to deal with this problem and vote for them. This does not include uh, any of the present candidates in my view.
1: Now, you've been writing these for, what is it, close to 20 years?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. The first one came out in
1: 1974. Uh, Where did Spencer
2: get his name? It's based on uh, Edmund Spencer, the English poet uh, who wrote The Fairy Queen, and other poems, none of which anyone wished were longer. Uh, I I like the idea of the Renaissance illusion, and I like the odd spelling of Spencer, really.
3: Is there any reference in that to Marlowe?
2: Yeah. My my own guess is, and I have no way to substantiate that, that... uh, Raymond Chandler made up Philip Marlowe's name out of Sir Philip Sidney and uh, Christopher Marlowe.
3: Oh, pardon my ignorance. I have no idea who Sir Philip Sidney was.
2: They booked me on this show. This was supposed to be an intellectual (laughs) show. Where's my agent? Uh, Sir Philip Sidney was a a Renaissance poet, an English Renaissance poet, warrior. He was a great soldier and a better-than-average poet uh, and a courtier in the grand sense of the word. He was sort of the Renaissance man, as almost everyone knows. And I I figured that since he took Philip and Marlowe, I was left with Christopher Sidney and that didn't work. So I thought I'd go someplace else.
3: Is there a further connection between yourself and Chandler? Obviously uh, in your recent books, but in terms of shaping and inspiring the work.
2: Sure. I set out to copy him. In the earliest novels, I was just trying to uh, do what Chandler did and uh, write another, you know, create another Marlowe. Uh, I had uh, read all of the Chandler books early and often. Uh, I did a doctoral dissertation in which he is a part, but that's less meaningful than it would sound. Uh, I did the doctoral dissertation on this subject because I already knew about it, so it didn't take me very long to write the doctoral dissertation. But yes, he was uh, someone I wanted to be Philip Marlowe probably until I get older and then I wanted to be Raymond Chandler.
3: Is there a formula? Are there specific characteristics that you then set out to meet?
2: No. Or there may be, but if there are, I'm not aware of them. That is, uh, someone else may be able to see a formula at work. I don't. By my head doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. I just sort of uh, tried to create a character. And at the beginning, I would say, you know, in each instance, in doubt, what would Marlowe have said or how would Marlowe have reacted? And uh, then as I suddenly discovered that not only was I going to write these and people were going to publish them, but they would pay me for it. I began to develop confidence, and uh, with confidence uh, came—I went off on my own. I stopped thinking about Marlowe.
3: You had been writing before you began writing these novels. I I looked at your biography. You had been uh, a technical writer and Mm -hmm. an advertising copywriter. Did you just chop those off and, and start as if you were a newborn person, or is there continuity?
2: There's no continuity. I, well, that's not quite fair to say. I think all, if one is to be a writer, any writing one does is probably useful. But I'd be hard-pressed to uh, find anything particularly useful in either the the technical or the uh, advertising writing that I did.
1: When you began writing, it was long before the mystery craze came along. And now we can see people just starting to write and say, saying, I'll go out and sell the book. Yeah. What was your experience? What brought you to writing, uh, as you say, in Imitation Marlowe way back when?
2: I always wanted to be a writer as a kid, you know, uh, probably because I had what the school teachers of that era would have called a flair for writing. And uh, I got married early and had children young, and it was an era in which I was required to support all of them. Where was the women's movement when I really needed it, you know? Now she's independent, you know. Uh, but, uh, So – and I would – it was a choice I would make again in a a heartbeat. Uh, It's – the most significant thing I ever did was to marry Joan and have those boys. But uh, it required me to work and uh, I never liked that. And I worked for years and I am a writer who has to have long stretches of uninterrupted time in order to, to do my work. I may not take all that time but I can't sit down knowing I only get an hour. I have to know I have the rest of the day so finally after various and sundry you know, unsatisfying jobs in the marketplace uh, it was i went back to school to get a phd it was really jones idea i you know got a teaching fellowship and i scrambled and worked nine jobs and uh, so forth and finally got the phd got to be a professor at a university and there were the long hours of uninterrupted time that i had so desperately needed and the minute i got there and got tenure and was teaching nine hours a week which leaves a moment or two over, you know, for doing other things. I started to write. I mean, it was not because it came to me that I wanted to. It was what I always wanted to do. And when I did it, that's what came out. I didn't say, "Aha! I think I will write." You know, a modernized version. I just wrote a book, and it came out that way. Your
3: first first novel was the first Spencer,
2: right? The God of Master. And
3: now, uh, in in the course of almost twenty years, you've written seventeen of them. Mm-hmm. Now. By some magic, Spencer of the Godwolf Manuscript could leap out of the book and meet Spencer of Double Deuce. Would they know each other?
2: Yeah, just as you could know somebody uh, who had leapt out of your life 20 years ago and was you then. Would you be the same? No, I don't suppose so. But uh, I would recognize the me that lived in 1971 when I started writing these books. Uh, I was still Joan's husband and David and Daniel's father. And we would have changed, but we would certainly recognize our lineage.
1: Does Spencer age?
2: He ages in that uh, he has memories, uh, which if you want to figure it out, you can tell that he's close to 60. I will be 60 in September, and uh, he has most of the things I remember. Uh, I mean, there are dateable things. He was in the Korean War. Uh, he uh, fought Joe Walcott. And so how, how young could he be? But I do not mention his age after the first book. And... Uh, It's a problem I don't know how to solve, so I have decided to avoid it altogether.
1: In past time, you finally begin talking about his past. Mm Why did it take so long?
2: Didn't think of it before. (laughs) Didn't occur to me. I think heroes need to be uh, somewhat mysterious in their origins, uh, and uh, we will never learn all about him. But I am, for inexplicable reasons, very popular in Japan to a kind of cult figure status. The last time, the time I was there in 1989 with my wife and my family, we get off the plane. There were banners and bands and a crowd. And one of my sons said to my wife, she said, someone's coming here. It must be really important. <laughs> and it was me. But I do commercials and things in Japan. Uh, there's a, a line of men's cosmetics called the Spencer's Tactics, that sort of thing. So I wrote a series of essays for Suntory Industries about Spencer for them to use in a way which remains mysterious to me you know i don't know what they do with them. but suntory makes everything you know beer automobiles television sets <laughs> uh, resort hotels restaurants and uh, when i had done this uh, i had all this stuff all of these essays uh, about spencer's various past activities and i recycled them uh, that's probably why i didn't do it sooner
3: so spencer as a character does grow and evolve, although he doesn't exactly age.
2: Yeah, fair
3: enough. Eighteen Spencers over a period of of approximately 20 years. Do you ever get bored with him?
2: No, that's not quite the right phraseology, I think, if I may. Uh, Do I get bored writing about it? There is no him in my imagination. Uh, There's a him in the reader's imagination, but I deal with him in five-page bits every day, Uh, and he is much more like the flour and the salt and you're making bread. You know, he's the ingredient in what I do. And so he has he has no life between books. I never think about him. I was on Oprah last week and uh, some writers there were talking about how their characters called to them, write about me again. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I let that pass without comment, but it doesn't happen to me. No, I don't get more bored about it. I mean, I like being a writer and I like doing the work. I don't think there's a writer alive who doesn't value distraction, Uh, and uh, I never, I would always rather not sit down and write on any given day. It's rather like, uh, you know, if you're a runner or a weightlifter. I've, I've done both for many years, and every day I don't want to run, and every day I don't want to lift weights, and every day I don't want to write, so my life is a series of obstacles to be overcome. On the other hand, I would never give any of it up. Indeed, I think time passage makes it easier to do this rather than harder to do it.
3: well, to look at look at this question from a slightly different angle, having written this many books about the same character, do you either as the author or do you do you feel putting yourself in the position of an editor or a reader, start to think, well, you know, this is getting a little bit stale. Maybe Parker should try something different, create a new hero, a new character
2: no i have not thought has never occurred to me uh and if i did that of the same kind of novel it would be spencer with another name and uh i see no reason to do that uh, nor do i ever does i never say to myself i think this is getting stale eek
1: <laughs> you have other characters who reappear um mm-hmm. and not merely just hawk and susan also paul mm-hmm. jockman the who's sort of a stepson to mm-hmm. spencer Uh, Two villains named Joe Braz and Tony Marcus, Mm -hmm. Lieutenant Quirk, who doesn't seem to be around much lately. He seems to have disappeared out of sight. Wait until you see the next book. Okay. (laughs) Um, Joe Braz and Tony Marcus, they seem to me to be very similar as characters. Do they seem that way to you? They hadn't until you asked. I guess the simple answer is no, they don't. They wind up being behind a lot of the difficulties uh,
2: in, in a number of the books. And are these based on
1: real people? No,
2: I made them up. I wasn't even aware when I used the name Joe Braz. It is, of course, a transliteration of Joseph Braz, uh, Marshal Tito of Yugoslavian fame. Uh, I mean, I knew that Marshal Tito's name was Josip Braz, but I didn't think of it when I used it. I'm sure that it must have lodged in my subconscious someplace. But people periodically still to this day write me letters saying, aha, you <laughs> you were really thinking of Marshal Tito.
1: Is Susan Joan?
2: No, Susan isn't Joan, but uh, she's more like Joan than anyone in the books is like anyone except Pearl, who is like Pearl. But uh, Spencer's feelings about Joan and his reaction to her are are mine, would be a better way to say that. And uh, Susan's best qualities are aspects of Joan and her worst. Uh, I have, uh, you know, all of this is imaginary and nothing comes straight from life except Pearl the Wonder Dog. Joan can't cook, you know. She she cooks bad, but she makes a mess while she's doing it, you know. But she is uh, the central fact of my life and she's the smartest person I know. And uh, she's quite beautiful and all of that. And uh, I have known her quite a bit longer than Spencer has known Susan since we were three. My affection for her is boundless as his is for Susan and uh, to that extent, she's like Joan.
1: Do you see any parallels in the ups and downs of their relationship? Have you made, like, for instance, at one point Susan and and Spencer weren't getting along. Mm-hmm. Were you not getting along with Joan? Yeah, at the Joan same and point? I were separated at the time. Yeah. You were.
2: Yeah. the uh, The intention, I mean, the uh, biographical fallacy sometimes works. Uh, writers write what they've got, and while the the facts of my separation from Jones and Spencer's separation from Susan are not the same uh the event was there and i had to transmit it through my imagination and make something out of it
3: in the newest book in in double deuce you address uh as, as we mentioned earlier in the show this question of urban ghettos and the mm-hmm. terrible conditions that mm-hmm. exist there today and uh, the even more terrible events that may yet transpire mm-hmm. there uh, other than the fact that this is part of our contemporary reality and we're Unless we're just totally ostriches, we
2: must be aware of this in some degree. Mm-hmm.
3: Did you specifically go in and research this?
2: No. This is mostly imaginary, uh, other than what you described. One is aware of all of this. My wife, uh, we were in Los Angeles, as a matter of fact, when I was writing it. We have a home in L.A. as well as Boston. Mm-hmm. We spend most of our year in Boston and go to Los Angeles for comic relief every uh, every winter. And Joan called uh, a woman named Karen Panacevich, whom she knew through a mutual acquaintance. She's never met Karen either, but they have a mutual friend who is someone who works with the gang kids in Boston. And, uh, she talked to Karen for a while and the character of Aaron Macklin in the book is loosely based on what Karen told Joan. I've never met Karen. I can't base someone on her, but, uh, she is the vehicle through which Karen's information reaches the public. Other than that, it's imaginary. I made up the language. Uh, I gave them a a, a ghetto slang of my own origin, uh, rather than trying to emulate theirs or, and have it go out of style by the time the book appeared or whatever. The most of it, I mean, the biggest part of it was I did what all writers do. What if I were he, you know, what if I were in those circumstances? I mean, that's how books get written. What if, you know, what if I were a young man in those circumstances, would I join a gang and what would I be like? Yes, I would. And I'd be like, they are, you know, that's,
1: the the other day I just saw a movie called New Jack City, mm-hmm. which is about some black drug dealers mm-hmm. who take over a housing project very similar to Double Deuce. Had you seen New Jack no, City? I've never seen New Jack City. Interesting parallel there. When I uh,
2: – maybe they – no, they, the movie came out before the book. It was playing in L.A. when it came out and I was living in Westwood and there was riots at the theaters and I thought, ah, well, I'll wait for it, wait for it to come on cable. You know? I'm too old to wrestle.
3: I realize that you are a novelist, not a sociologist, mm-hmm. not a, uh, a, nor a politician, but your concern is obvious and mm-hmm. your awareness is obvious. Mm-hmm. Do you see any way out of this?
2: Well, it's race and poverty intermixed, so intertwined that I don't know how to disentangle them. Daniel Patrick Moynihan some years ago said, the first thing you have to realize is that the poor are poor because they don't have money. So let's get the money. My solution would be that people without money and without any way to get it should have an opportunity to have money without being humiliated for several generations. And if that happens, probably this will all go away. How do I do that? I haven't any idea. Vote for people who might.
3: What about the fact that you can buy a gun about as easily as you can buy a package of chewing gum?
2: Well, that's the way it is. That's not – I mean, you can buy it illegally. In Massachusetts, at least, uh, you cannot buy a handgun without a license. Uh, and you can get a license from your local police chief. Normally, you have to pass a firing test. You have to go up down the police station, fire in their range, which is probably a good idea. Some places in L.A., there's a uh, – in California, I guess, what, a week or two-week waiting period, 15 days, I think. Uh, on the other hand, that's not the same as saying that it's hard to get a gun. I I do honestly, you know, I don't want to sound like the NRA with guns don't kill people, people kill people. But it seems to me that the emphasis on handguns is the wrong emphasis. If the reasons for violence go away, the violent use of handguns will go away. If, for instance, you were to take all of the handguns that are now illegally owned in New York City and find every one of the people who had one and prosecute them you would jam up the courts in New York City for somewhere into the 22nd century. You would have nothing else to do. You can't. It's not an enforceable rule, Uh, and I don't know how it can be enforced. It's like like running around trying to catch drug dealers. Uh, You can't do it. The DEA is so overwhelmed, Uh, and so are the cops. Uh, It's not possible. Uh, What one has to do is find another way to deal with the problem.
1: I'd like to change the subject a little bit back toward... Your characters themselves, Hawk. Yes, uh, he came along, and at first, I guess he was he was more of a foil for Spencer. But he's grown into something else, and mm-hmm. not merely because he had his own TV show, which <laughs> I guess would give anybody an ego. Not tribute. hardly. <laughs> but he started originally as I think you described him once as being Spencer without moral qualms, or something like that.
2: Spencer, if uh, Spencer had uh, the dark side of Spencer, racial pun intended, uh, Spencer has. He might have been had he grown up in the kind of deprivation that many black men grew up in a white culture.
1: Well, Spencer himself seemed very, very moral in his outlook, and I guess he still is. But somewhere along the line, something changed, and I'm I'm not sure if it was in Widening Guard. It might have been Catskill Eagle. Uh, the the one where he invaded a place to get Susan out was that yeah, Casca and I noticed in that book he actually Spencer actually murders people in cold blood mm-hmm. which he's never done before and I don't know if he's done it since but he did it in that book uh, did you feel as if you were violating something or that Spencer had stepped over a line and become Hawk?
2: no I think that uh, there was never any reason to kill anyone in cold blood before uh, there are certainly people who ought to be killed in cold blood isn't, isn't it too bad someone didn't kill Jeffrey Dahmer in cold blood some years ago or the people that shot up? Isn't it too bad somebody in the McDonald's didn't have a gun down there in San Diego and they shot up and killed a bunch of people? I mean, I, I, cold-blooded murder is a way of saying it, which makes it sound like we're all supposed to say, ooh. Uh, but in fact, there are people probably who ought to be shot. And uh, in this case, the stakes were so high for Spencer that he was willing to kill people if he needed to. I would... Think that I would be perfectly willing to kill someone in cold blood uh, on behalf of uh, the, the former Joan Hollow Swampskin. I've not been required to yet, but we'll see.
3: W- would you hold that for sufficiently high stakes, anybody would, could,
2: and should do anything? Probably. I don't know what other code one would turn to. Uh, I am not. Uh, I'm as Lenny. as Lenny Bruce i Sam no Lenten Special, you know. I mean, the post-Christian age. It is hard to think of. I mean, we regularly ask people to uh, kill on behalf of their country. And three or four years down the line, we ask people then to kill the people that we were helping. On you know, I mean, uh, the, who whose side are we on this year? That goes on all the time. You know, people killed on behalf of their church regularly and sometimes rather torturously. I don't have a, an official opinion on that. It seems to me in defense of, say, your wife and children, you would be, have the right to kill someone uh, and not feel guilty about it afterwards.
1: So therefore, even though Spencer does go on and not merely kill the ones who are holding her hostage, but he actually kills people who – and he's not defending himself to
2: do it. No, he had to do that because – I believe he's uh, killed a man who would have punished two prostitutes who helped Spencer along the way. It seems to me that that was a case where it would be worse not to. But again, I am neither a moralist nor a sociologist, but a novelist. That seemed to work out. That's the way the story told best. That's the way, for lack of a better word, the art expressed itself most artfully.
1: If that's the case, and if Spencer can do that, doesn't the difference between Spencer and Hawke again disappear? It's very narrow, if there
2: is one.
3: Before we get on to your non-Spencer books, which I, I would like to spend a few minutes on, but before we get to that, let's talk about that horrible subject... Television. (laughs) Spencer for Hire, 1985 Mm -hmm. through 1988, and then A Man Called Hawk. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned before we went on the air that the story is not yet over.
2: No, the story continues. Uh, Joan and I have agreed uh, through our production company, Pearl Productions, named after Pearl the Wonder Dog, uh, to do four Spencer for higher television movies on Lifetime through ABC Video, which is owned by ABC and so forth. We will write the scripts, and therefore they might be a slight improvement on the ones that were written before. It will probably star Robert Urich and Avery Brooks. I say probably because everyone's agreed, but no one signed anything. And there will be a new actress to play Susan Silkman as yet undetermined. That should take place. Uh, we start shooting the first one in England in November.
3: And will these be based on existing parts? The first one
2: is based on the Judas Goat. Uh, There's foreign financing in the deal, so we have to shoot two out of four of them in in the foreign country. So the Judas Goat was a plausible first choice. And uh, then we'll do uh, three more. Joan will be a supervising producer. So we'll have something, we'll have a little better chance to keep them from turning it into sausage. Though, uh, as we all know, if you feed it into the sausage machine, it's quite likely to come out sausage, no matter who's feeding it in.
1: What were your feelings about Spencer for Hire, the TV show?
2: Uh, I thought it wasn't bad television, which is a little like being the tallest building in Des Moines. Uh, (laughs) But uh, I thought it was a pretty good television show. Uh, I thought it did not capture my books very well. I didn't expect that it would when I sold the rights, you know, you don't sell the rights to something to Hollywood with the expectation they're going to improve on it. Uh, and uh, they've never failed me yet. You know, they, they have not improved on it, but as, uh, you know, their business is to make a pretty good television show. And I thought it was not a bad television show. Man Called Hawk on the other hand was as far as I can tell the worst television show that's ever been produced. And, uh, I had nothing to do with that. Uh, Avery, Brooks, who was a star, probably got a better rap than he deserves out of that. I don't think it was his fault. Avery wanted to uh, put a black spin on it. Uh, and I said, yeah, I mean, I can't put a black spin on it. I'm a white Irish guy from Boston, you know. You're a black guy. You can put a black spin on it. That's fine with me. Well, I said, but Avery, you only need you and me. I have the rights. You have the character, you know. That's all we need. We don't need to go through all of these people who are going to screw it up. And he didn't want to go that route. Avery, I told you. I don't blame him. I mean, the the responsibility of doing the deal yourself is tiresome. But in fact, nobody knew what to do with it. Uh, Avery wanted uh, the black spin. The producers, nobody in Hollywood knew how to give it that spin. Uh, And uh, it was right for Avery to want the spin. It was right that Avery couldn't put the spin on just so he wanted it. I could have done it, a white Irish kid from Boston, but uh, I wasn't in the deal. And uh, they just butchered it, and it was gone in 13 weeks. Too bad, because it could have been good, and it would have been nice to have a non-amusing black action hero on television. Yeah.
3: Well, in, in fact, as we were also chatting before we went on the air, uh, when Aaron Elkins was, was visiting us here at KPFA, He was telling the story of how Gideon Oliver turned into Lewis Gossett. His comments and and feelings were very, very similar to yours. Apparently he'd had very high hopes and was...
2: Well, I had no high hopes. I think it's too bad about A Man Called Hawk because uh, I had some hope that that might have been... I mean, I don't know how much difference novels can make. Television can make some difference. It never does because it's almost always uh, a system devised by geniuses to be carried out by idiots or whatever the quote from Herman Wouk about the U.S. Navy. But uh, the people who run it, the people who run the, the entertainment business have never written a script, acted, done makeup, built a set, made a f- anything. They don't know how to do that. And so they invented something called programming. And they shuffle things on a chart. And they counter-program and they pre-program and they post-program. But they don't know how to do anything. They don't know how to tell stories. Uh, the fault lies amongst... Uh, the, the nuts in the executive branch, I think. Well, how much control will you have over these four lifetime movies? The people who put up the money have control, and I'm not putting up the money. Uh, I will have what, uh, it's like you know, asking how many, you what know, Stalin say, how many divisions does the Pope have? Uh, I will have moral suasion, but uh, how many divisions do I have? Yeah.
1: Had you ever considered having a novel just with Hawk? No,
2: I can't, uh, I think, uh, look at Hawk from the inside. Uh, As long as Hawk is seen through eyes that I can, uh, you know, through white eyes, Spencer's, then I can comfortably write about Hawk uh, and uh, not worry about whether people are going to say, you know, how dare you write about a black man, you're a white man. My experiences aren't Spencer's, but they're experiences which my imagination can turn into Spencer. I haven't had experiences that my imagination can turn into Hawk. uh, And so I will see him from the outside always.
1: Before we move on to the Raymond Chandler collaboration, I do want to ask you about the women in your books because they tend to be very strong, mm-hmm. thinking specifically, of course, Rachel Wallace. Susan mm-hmm. is a very mm-hmm. strong character. But in every one of your books, it seems there's one woman who – non non-Susan woman mm-hmm. who's very strong. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you make that a priority?
2: No, it just works out that way. I do uh, – I like women. You betcha. I have a sort of ecumenical impulse. Susan's Jewish, Hawk's Black, Spencer's White. The women are strong. The bad guys aren't Italian. You know, I have all of that sort of little shtick that I do. Uh, But uh, sometimes the women seem appropriate, too. I I flew someplace in this last week with a woman pilot on a commercial airliner. And I felt comforted, and I thought, "Yeah, I, maybe women are sort of more dependable than men in many ways. They don't have the the vapors about uh, machismo and all of that."
1: You also have uh, the living arrangements changing in Double Deuce, mm-hmm. where Spencer and Susan decide to live together. Did that just come up in the context of writing the book, or had you been thinking about that for some time?
2: No, I play with uh, the living arrangement. Uh, all of you People Magazine fans know that Joan and I live uh, an unusual uh, domestic uh, style and that uh, we share a life but not space. We have a large house in Cambridge and she lives on the third floor and I live on the first and second. We intermingle. Uh, the unasked question is always, are you intimate? You bet. You bet. But, you know, she eats dinner when she wants to, when I when I want to. She has her own kitchen. Uh, She sleeps in her bed and I sleep in mine. Uh, And uh, it seems now the most felicitous way to uh, live that I can imagine. I don't know how we ever put up with the other way before. So, you know, I have translated that into an ongoing experiment for them, too.
3: There are three non-Spencer and also non-Chandler
2: novels, Wilderness, Love and Glory, and Three Weeks in Spring. Yeah. Three Weeks in Spring is autobiographical. It's not a novel. It's uh, nonfiction.
3: How did those come about, particularly then, um, since you mentioned that Three Weeks in Spring is not, is not a novel, the two that are, Wilderness and Love and Glory?
2: Wilderness, uh, I wanted to uh, play around with the, uh, I don't know where the idea came from exactly, but uh, the sort of Hemingway hero, big, muscular, tough guy, who was in fact very uncertain of his courage. Uh, And the small, unphysical woman who had no doubts about hers. Uh, And I was playing with the contrast between size and strength and courage. And uh, being strong is not the same as being brave. That sort of translated itself. And you can't do that in a Spencer novel. I can't make Spencer suddenly uh, fearful. So uh, I also wanted to play with a third-person narration because I hadn't done it. So I did it. The publishing world does not encourage one generally to uh, deviate from the goose that's laying the golden egg. But if you're doing okay, they'll, you know, they'll let Clancy write a uh, a short novel about boyhood romance if he wants to, you know. And they'll publish it uh, and they'll bite the bullet. But, you know, what they want him to write is techno thrillers and uh, they want me to write Spencer.
1: Now, you also have the Raymond Chandler books. How did Poodle Springs come about, and how much of Poodle Springs is Chandler?
2: To get the easy part over first, I had a 13-page manuscript. The first 13 pages are Chandler's. Not in this book. I don't know how many pages there. I think it's the first four chapters are Chandler. It was 13 pages on the piece of paper that they sent me. It had kicked around for a long time. I knew of it. I had read it before. The Poodle Springs story, it was called, and it was the beginning of a novel, which would have come after playback. And the Chandler estate sought me out through a British literary agent named Ed Victor. He's actually American by birth and nationality, but he works in England. Ed Victor called my agent and said, here's a deal we propose. Uh, And they got the deal part out of the way before my agent called me. Because if she calls me before and says, how would you like to? And I say, what's the deal? After all, I do live in Los Angeles part time. So she said, well, uh, you know, the Chandler estate wants you to do this. You'll get blah, blah, and blah, blah. And I was flattered to be asked. That's how it came about.
1: Did you have any difficulty writing it,
2: putting yourself into that mode? Yes. It was harder than perhaps if someone had asked me to finish a novel by Jane Austen or somebody because Chandler and I write similarly. Spencer and uh, Marlowe are similar. And it was very easy to drift across the line. It was very hard not to.
1: What about in, in the next, which was an
2: original Marlowe book that you wrote, Perchance to Dream. Uh, Again, uh, they wanted that. I was a little more skeptical of that, but I was willing to listen to them. And also, I wanted to try from scratch. That is, while I had only 13 pages, the 13 pages set the story. You know, Marlowe was married, which he had never been, and the tension between them had already been established about whether or not she'd support him because she was rich or he'd work and all that sort of thing. And I wanted to take... Start from scratch, see what I could do. Uh, I did. It's done. Uh, I'm happy with both the books. I don't want to do anymore. They're too hard, too much concentration. I'll go back to what I do. I don't want to spend my life writing somebody else's books either.
3: There's a wonderful picture on the on the back dust jacket of your new novel, Double Deuce. It's Robert Parker wearing a Boston Braves cap. You're right. And posing there with you with a wonderful smile on her face is Pearl the Wonder Dog. Pearl the Wonder Dog, yeah. These these elements lead me to ask, even though you have made the comment that these are just stories, in quotation marks, yet it's, it seems to me that the Spencer novels in particular are very closely rooted in the real world. Do you Do you have feelings about this?
2: Well, I think they are rooted in the real world, but uh, unless you are going to write fantasy, what else is there to be rooted in? They are rooted in my experience, but you can't tell my experience from reading the books. That is my experience filtered through my imagination. I am writing romance, not, you know, in the popular term, but like Northrop Frye would mean it. That is stories about people who are superior to ordinary people uh, in a world that is, however, real. The rooting of a romantic figure in reality requires a good deal of the, what Wallace Stevens once called the felt surface of life, to be uh, to be rendered. And the more concrete and realistic that world is, the more believable, the somewhat larger than life hero is. And so that there is a great deal of concreteness. I also mine my own life very much for it. But that's in part sort of a literary economy. Why do research you know, when when I have? Why write about something else when I have Pearl the Wonder Dog at hand?
3: What I'm thinking of uh, for contrast, obviously, an author like Charlotte Macleod, who who writes uh, ultra cozies, is writing. It isn't fantasy in the technical sense of being supernatural or or having horses with wings, mm. but it's it's so clearly divorced yes. from yes. reality. Yet at the other end of the spectrum, a writer like Mickey Spillane, who might think that he's a realist, is still writing fantasy, or at least, so. So it seems to me. Yeah, a I reader. think
2: that's true too. Mickey told me once that, uh, what was the first one? I, the Jury, I think, was yes. originally uh, he originally planned that as a comic book, and couldn't sell it, and so he turned it into a novel. Mick will say, uh, "I don't have readers; I have uh, customers." He has no illusions.
1: After Double Deuce. Are you planning to bring back that young man who seems to play a major role in the book, sort of as the, the uh, if you will, the dark side of Paul? Oh, uh,
2: Major Johnson? I don't know. I don't have a master plan. Uh, I have no idea. I know exactly what's going to happen in Paper Doll because it's finished. Beyond that, uh, I don't have any idea at all. What I don't know what the next expensive book will be about. Before I get to the next expensive book, I have a long... Novel to write about three generations of an Irish family on the police in Boston, which has no title yet, and I just refer to it as a cop novel. I'm about 50 pages into that, and uh, with three more scripts to do as well. So that's my that's my plate for the next six months or so.
3: You think your publisher is is indulging you by letting you do the no cop this novel? one
2: uh, this one is different. This one everyone thinks is uh, the novel I was born to write. They say they put up a lot of money to do this this should be very interesting we'll see
3: they're happy and excited about it they're not just yeah. indulging a star no writer. this is
2: a this is with another publisher it's a complicated deal that no one's really terribly interested in about who had the option rights after i switched from one publisher to another and it took a long time to thrash out but now it is thrashed out and Doubleday, dell delacorte Bantam group uh, i lose track after a while uh, we'll bring it out when it's done. And they're very enthusiastic about it. Uh, one always wonders when, you know, how many of my readership will say, oh, there's a new Parker book, pick it up, find it's not a Spencer and put it down in distaste. It's it's always a danger people fear. But I am Irish, I live in Boston, and I have spent my adult career writing about cops. So people seem to think this is a good idea. Let's hope so.
0: This book The Parker mentions, All Our Yesterdays, was published in 1994 and was about a hundred pages longer than most Spencer novels. Those four Robert Urich Spencer films did get made, each based on a different Spencer novel by Parker. Three Spencer TV movies based on three other novels with Joe Montana as Spencer ran from 1999 to 2001. In the interview, Robert B. Parker insists he would not start another series. In fact, of course, he did. The Sonny Randall series featuring the female former cop turned private eye, the Cole and Hitch series of western detective novels, and the Jesse Stone series featuring the police chief of a small town in Massachusetts. There have been nine made-for-television films starring Tom Selleck as Jesse Stone. A recent Netflix film, Spencer Confidential, starring Mark Wahlberg, is based on a posthumous Spencer novel written by the novelist Ace Atkins. You've been listening to an interview with the late mystery author Robert B. Parker, recorded June 13, 1992 in the KPFA studios, while he was on tour for his Spencer novel, Double Deuce. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, And feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.